This is from Acts 8. An angel from the Lord spoke to Philip. At noon, take the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he did. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man was on his way home from Jerusalem, where he had come to worship. He was an Enoch and an official responsible for the entire treasury of Candace. Candace is the title given to the Ethiopian queen. He was reading the prophet Isaiah while sitting in the carriage. The spirit told Philip, approach this carriage and stay with it. Running up to the carriage, Philip heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you really understand what you are reading? The man replied, without someone to guide me, how could I? Then he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his descendants because his life was taken from the earth? The Enoch asked Philip, tell me about whom does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. As they went down the road, they came to some water. The Enoch said, look, water, what would keep me from being baptized? He ordered that the carriage halt. Both Philip and the Enoch went down to the water where Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Lord's spirit suddenly took Philip away. The Enoch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself in Azotus. He traveled through that area, preaching the good news in all the cities until he reached Caesarea. Mark, you can come on up. After that incredible introduction, I've got to apologize for the inevitable letdown. Uh, Rachel, will you, anytime I have to speak anywhere in the Triangle area, will you go and be the one who introduces me? Uh, Chris had sent me uh, an email and when we were just starting the Gathering Church and uh, said, can we meet? So we met in a, in a coffee shop and uh, he did have a lot of hair at that time. It was kind of like a helmet. And, uh, but I remember he, he, when we finished and I was leaving, he gave me an envelope and it had his tithe offering in it. So uh, he introduced me to uh, Duke Divinity School's students that bribe uh, pastors uh, for a position. And it, and it worked out great. But about two weeks, uh, two weeks into their visiting our church, I was wearing a little leather black backpack that I was kind of proud of. And just chatting with Rachel outside, she just suddenly said, hey, you need to ditch the backpack. That's not a cool look. <laughs> so, and I was so impressed. Uh, so uh, I... Uh, I, I channel a lot of my fashion thoughts through what might Rachel Breslin say. But pray with me. Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus who came and loved you, loved all people, and gave himself for this world. We thank you that you poured your Holy Spirit out on all flesh 
And that even now your Holy Spirit has been working among us here to inspire our worship uh, and to open our minds. So we ask that your Spirit might continue to shape in us the love of Christ for others. Amen. The strength of the Christian life is confidence. Confidence in that we can trust God with his love for us. Confidence that we can follow Jesus and experience his grace. And confidence that the Spirit of God is working is producing life and we can rely on God's Spirit. Now perhaps that strength, at least for me, perhaps for you, is often one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life. Many times I don't have a lot of confidence in my confidence in God. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 4, that everything that was written beforehand was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What Rachel just read was written to encourage Encourage us uh, to give us hope and also to ignite our imaginations about, about what God might be doing in this world. You know, starting last week in chapter 8, we have a dramatic change of scenery and acts. Up until that point, everything's been in Jerusalem, focusing on the preaching and ministry of the apostle Peter and then Chapter 7, one of the newer followers of Christ, a person filled with the Holy Spirit and faith named Stephen, is arrested. And he gives this incredible explanation to his Jewish trial audience about the historic work of God and how it was leading up until this moment in Christ. And then he tells them that they had killed God's anointed one. And you know the story. The result is they rush him out and they stone him. They execute him. And that right after that, a great persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. And the thousands of relatively new believers flee the city. Um, on a scale smaller than what Tasu and her family have experienced. They flee the city except the apostles. Now you and I know too much at this point to feel any suspense about that. First few years of ministry, my office is on a property that had a little auto shop. It wasn't much developed. It was run by Larry, a guy named Larry, and he sold some used cars occasionally. And this is back in the 80s, you know, before your parents were married. And Larry was a character. 
He was a Vietnam vet who talked like a Rocky Balboa in the Rocky movies and had the personality and attitude of Rambo. So that combination, very few words, and didn't seem to be happy with anybody around him. Well, one late Friday night, I was uh, not that late, but in, this is outside the Boston area, so it gets dark in the winter about four o'clock. Uh, he came to the building where my office was, and I was the only office in this little A-frame building, and I hear him say, hey, you have any used car prayers? And I went to the top of the stairs and said, what? You know any used car prayers? I said, I'll pray for you. you know, I hadn't sold a car in a long time. Well, I'll pray for you, but you, you, I need to warn you that, you know, if you ask God's help, he, he may want to take your life. He may want to grow your life. He may want to give you more than you're asking. Well, I'll take my chances. Monday morning when I drive in and park, Larry comes out of his door. Hey, did you pray? And actually, when he left the building, I said a little 30-second helping, but then I just felt like, you know, Spirit of God laid on my heart. No, really pray for that guy. And I prayed for God's blessing on his life for about 20 minutes. And so he said, did you pray? Did you sell a car? I asked you first, did you pray? I prayed for almost a half hour for you. I sold two cars. Well, one Monday morning, when I'm going to the office, he's driving by in his truck, and he said, hey, what did you talk about yesterday? I said, I told a story about a man who couldn't walk, and his friends wanted to get him to Jesus, but they couldn't because of the crowd, so they climbed on a roof and dug a hole through the roof and lowered him down right in front of Jesus, and Jesus said, my son, your sins are forgiven, and then the religious leaders went mildly berserk and said, who can forgive sins but God alone, and Jesus said, to show that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say, rise and walk, and then I stopped. And Larry went, what happened? He was so engaged in the suspense of the story. And I said, he got up and walked. Now, I wish there was a great biography book ending about our relationship. I have no idea uh, whatever happened in Larry after our lives parted. But you and I, you know, we're aware in chapter 8 of this incredible obliteration of the first church. I mean, it's like a bomb goes off and they're scattered to the wind. And you and I can't imagine that it could have been over right then. It, it could have ended. And we may have never, ever heard about Jesus Christ. But you know, it didn't end. Because, you know, the ones that were fleeing, they were not trying to avoid people or anything. They, they were told that they preached the word of God wherever they went. And Philip, again, a relatively new believer, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who was one of the seven 
in Acts chapter 6, let's read one commentary, who was chosen by the apostles. I went, wrong. He was not chosen by the apostles. He was chosen by his own group within the church, the Hellenized Greeks. He was affirmed by the apostles to do this ministry of what we often think are the first deacons in the church. Well, he goes to Samaria and begins to talk about, he says, he, he, he declared the good news of Christ there. And lo and behold, all these people respond, and Chris talked about it last week, and it kind of freaks out the apostles back in Jerusalem. They send Peter and John down to figure out what's going on. They lay hands on them. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And then to our story today, suddenly Philip is transferred from mass evangelism to a whole crowd of people to a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And what we discover, what should encourage us right off the bat from this story is how boundless the love of God is in the gospel. How boundless. We should get a sense of, of movement, almost like rushing water. Ezekiel had a vision described in Ezekiel 47 of one day there water would flow down from the altar in the temple and it would come underneath the door and begin to flow out in the courtyard and it'd keep flowing and he said you walked away a certain way and it's getting up to your ankle as you get further away suddenly it's up to your knees then it's up to your waist and it becomes this unbelievable river of god that brings life wherever it goes he doesn't connect that vision necessarily with the spirit of god but in John 7, when the Jews are celebrating the last day of the feast and they have this water ceremony in which they pour out the water on the altar, symbolizing that vision, that's when Jesus stands up in a loud voice and says, if anybody is thirsty, uh, come unto me. And this water will begin to pour out. Because of the Holy Spirit, the love of God is boundless and it's a moving out it's the love of god is flowing out and suddenly you know philip is directed supernaturally by the spirit to go to this certain road and that's where he meets this ethiopian official head of all the treasury for the queen and he's coming from Jerusalem, he's either a convert to Judaism or was born of a Jewish mother. He's been worshiping and he has a scroll. He's not, you know, reading a phone scripture or book or anything. He has a scroll of Isaiah and he's reading and, you know, suddenly this conversation happens. And it's such a full conversation that this Ethiopian knows to say, hey, there's some water. Can I be baptized? I can't remember the last time I or if ever I've explained Christ in such a way that they said, hey, where can I be baptized now? Uh, oh, oh, the one time I was talking to a young woman who had been part of a denomination that, you know, uh, emphasized baptism as a, a saving experience. And I said, would you like to commit your life to Christ now? And she said, do I have time to go to get a dress so I can be my, one of my dresses to, so I can be baptized? And I was stunned. She was more biblical at that point than, than, than I was. Thanks to the Holy Spirit, the love of God is boundless. Now, I have to admit, 
when I read this passage, it can be discouraging because I think, wow, the Holy Spirit was directing him, you know, a spirit, an angel of the Lord first and then the Holy Spirit. There are so many times I've prayed for the Holy Spirit to direct me as audibly as possible, particularly in making big, big decisions. Lord, should we leave Massachusetts and go back to Chapel Hill where we've been students and be part of this church? I walked around, you know, Pond, Gates Pond over and over again. I did all sorts of things. And I realized then I, I wasn't really asking for guidance. I was asking God to remove any need of faith in my life. I wanted to be so clear. And I've generally been a little bit skeptical of people that uh, attribute all their actions or impulses to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit told me I should ask you out. You know, Holy Spirit told me you should support my ministry. You know, Holy Spirit told me uh, you sh I should be your roommate. <laughs> you know, I mean, I haven't heard those kind of examples. I have sometimes felt like the Holy Spirit, in a more quiet way, provides an insight. I, I would have no confidence or hope in ever speaking about God if I wasn't sure the Holy Spirit was involved from the invitation all the way through the process. And it's interesting, I know a pastor, he can't hardly preach without tearing up in every single sermon. It's become a kind of an annoyance to his congregation. They sort of time how long it'll take him to get to that tear. Uh, I often tear up in the preparation of sermons when the truth is so powerfully at work on me, so I can't wait to share. And I believe that's the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit has given me an insight that, like, I would not have thought of that. Listening to a husband one time explain why he and his wife were separated, and he's telling me about the uh, adultery, adulterous affair she had had, and he's going on and on and talking about her and, and this affair. And I'm, I'm listening, and suddenly it was as if God said, when he shuts up, Tell him that he does not love his wife. I've kind of thought, you sure about that? <laughs> I don't think he's going to be expecting me. He's, he's positioned himself as such a victim. He's looking for comfort and consolation. He's looking for somebody to be on his side in this terrible thing that happened. As soon as he did shut up, I, I, I didn't say, God told me to tell you you don't love your wife. I said, it seems clear that you do not love your wife. And that's like a slap in the face. And it's, I begin to explain. If you loved your wife, you never would have described that experience like that. You, you, you never would have demeaned her in such a way. You wouldn't have hidden it, but you wouldn't have talked about it like that. Three days later, he wanted to get together. And he said, man, that really whacked me. And all now I can think about is my role in our marriage, not what she's done. Not what she's done. So there are times when the Holy Spirit does, you know, speak to us. Holy Spirit makes the gospel boundless in this story at least two ways. First of all, the Holy Spirit's always multiplying messengers. To me, it's huge that Philip was not one of the 12, that he was one of the relative newbies. You know, one of the... He's later called Philip the Evangelist when Paul goes to visit him, described in Acts chapter 21. But he, he's one of the, the new folks. And yet he's had this powerful ministry in Samaria. And now he's part of launching the love of God to Ethiopia, the first African uh, Christian that we're aware of at that time. 
That's how boundless the love of God is. It couldn't be bounded in a Jewish-only setting, although this man had been worshiping in a Jewish setting. By the way, I wish I was preaching next week, too, in Acts 10 about Peter going to Cornelius' house because some of my Christian friends with whom I never talk politics have started bringing up critical race theory and fussing and complaining about it. And I'm going, are you kidding me? If the church didn't you know, have its own form of that that they applied, none of us would be Christians. If they hadn't imagined that it was not just a Jewish thing, if they hadn't asked the simple questions, could some of this be Jewish only and not gospel? Like circumcision? Anyway, that's a whole other, uh, you know, subject. But he didn't stop, and he, Peter jumps up into the carriage in the chariot with the guy. God, through the Holy Spirit, multiplies messengers. My first church plant, again, outside of Boston, a woman calls me one day and says, hey, are you the pastor starting this new church? Yeah, I am. Well, my son, his name's Mark as well, he lives there. And he grew up in a Christian home, but he doesn't have anything to do with it. He's married to a, a woman who's a Christian. She goes to church sometime. Would you mind calling him up? And before I could really think about it, I said, oh, of course, I'd be glad to call him. Hung up. I said, what did you just agree to? You know, uh, Mark, this is uh, Mark Acuff, uh, pastor of the new Baptist church. And uh, I didn't say Baptist in, in town. And your mother told on you, I, I, I know where you live. <laughs> and we had this chat. And he said to me, he said, listen, I think it's a bunch of BS. Would I still be welcome at your church? I said, are you kidding me? You're exactly why we exist, to have these kind of conversations and opportunities for people to discuss and discover, you know, what, what God's all about. And so he would come every once in a while with his wife, but he was so antagonistic. He wanted to argue about everything. It drove him crazy to see worshiping Christians. He wanted to go up and just say, why do you think this is true? As a matter of fact, at one time I said, hey, we don't ever need to talk about this again. It just seems to make you mad. And you don't have to come to church. We'll still be friends. And uh, He said, well, I just have this sneaking suspicion that my life's supposed to mean more than getting up every day, going to work, coming home, eating supper, going to bed, getting up. Well, it was over several years, but when they were having their first child and the crisis happened in the delivery, he suddenly, he, he called me and said, will you pray? And he thought, did I just ask him to do that? And it was shortly after that he put his faith in Christ. Now, there are a lot of other things to his story that are remarkable, but a couple of months later, uh, actually maybe a year or two later, he's out raking leaves in the fall in his front yard, and his neighbor comes over and says, Hey, Mark, you go to church, right? Yeah. I, I bought a Bible at a yard sale. I've read through it twice. Uh, do you think we could talk about it? Uh, Dave is his name. I wasn't Dave's neighbor. Mark was Dave's neighbor. You know, Mark drove up to me one Sunday. Hey, I think, I think Dave is ready to put his faith in Christ. You need to talk to him. I said, I don't need to talk to him. <laughs> you know, he's your neighbor. You explain it to him. One time we were asked to do a conference on evangelism. We didn't have an evangelism program at our church. We just loved people and had fun with them and enjoyed God and enjoyed people. And all I did was have several generations of this person led that person, led that person, led that person. And they just multiplied the, the witnesses. It is so incredible that God doesn't pay much attention to who was there first. And what that means is, this fall, the graduate students moving, 
someone who may be incredibly important to your life personally and to the life of this church in its future, you may not even know them yet. They may be here this Sunday. They may come next Sunday. And that doesn't mean as soon as we meet a visitor, we latch on to them and say, hey, you, you know, we need your tithes. We need your volunteer hours. We need all of that stuff. No, it just means we need to be open. We need to have almost that sense of some people that we don't know God's going to put in our life in our church, and they're going to change our church. They're going to change us. As I pray for the gathering church now and without any pastoral responsibility, uh, I pray, Lord, bring the people that are going to help us, you know, spark us, grow us, stretch us. Because if you look at the book of Acts, it's the new people that are, you know, flowing with the Holy Spirit. Stephen gives the first major testimony at a trial. Philip, Barnabas. When a new church is created in Antioch that they can't make sense of because it's Gentiles and Jews, what do you call it? They send Barnabas, a nickname son of encouragement. When no one wants to have anything to do with this convert persecutor of the church named Saul, it's Barnabas who goes and finds him and brings him back to Antioch. We should always be open-hearted and open-handed to whom God might, and not, not laying hands on them quickly, because Philip was a person vetted as full of the spirit and, you know, full of faith. God multiplies witnesses through the Holy Spirit. Second thing the Holy Spirit does, he creates new realities. He creates new realities. Things that don't exist come to be. I'll remember when our leadership team came over here, we were offered by the, the Baptist Association, would you like to consider moving to this building, the Gathering Church? And we sat right uh, in that back building there, and we were kind of like imagining it, thinking about it, and one of our newer folks, a man from India, who was huge on faith, he was the one who spoke first, said, no, I don't think we should move here. I think we should consider planning a church here. Rest of us were kind of hemming and hawing. What about this? What about that? But he 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 just kind of pushed. No, no, we should have the faith, and whether it's Chris or someone else, we should do that. And then, as we began to explore that, we weren't big enough to be planning churches, you know, not at all. We didn't even have our own building. My my wife still is upset with me that we gave Chris and Rachel a building. That we're still, you know. <laughs> Uh, well, she's not telling the truth, but <clears throat> but I'll never forget when we pulled together our leaders and uh, not just our leadership team, but anybody who had any responsibility in the church. And we crammed ourselves in this little office and we asked Chris and Rachel to describe what they were thinking and had in mind. And, you know, I'm listening. I'm thinking, dog, we should be doing those things. And then Chris spoke, and then Rachel spoke, and her heart and passion and love for this Lakewood community and the potential. Again, nothing existed at that moment remotely called Oak Church. It, it, I'm, you know, I don't want to stretch the analogies too far, but I, I don't think it even dropped out of the fallopian tube. Yeah, you know, it wasn't even, you know, in range for fertilization. I'm sorry about that. Now, I've given my wife another reason to be concerned. 
But as Rachel spoke, we were all moved by her passion. And she got a little teary. And man, it was like the Holy Spirit said, hey, all you pragmatic guys and men and women who want to kind of do the pro-con thing and what's going to, you know, forget about it. Forget about it. So you can imagine what it feels like for me today and Libby to be here and see something that we, we knew it when it didn't exist. And we don't know a lot of you. You're, you're the multiplied messengers. Uh, you're the people that can create new realities. And after seven years, it probably doesn't, particularly those of you who've been involved in a long time and been serving so hard, it doesn't seem probably much like a new reality. But, but you know, when the pandemic hit and services had, you know, Chris and you and some others, they had a vision. They weren't going to be bounded by this building. They could extend ministry and service and worship out over at Lakewood. One of the neatest things is to see the new things that the Holy Spirit creates. And it's usually not through somebody's wonderful brainchild. You know, we shouldn't be surprised at the movement of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said it in Acts chapter 1-8. It's going to come on you. You'll have power to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other. They didn't go back after Acts chapter 2 and say, okay, Jesus said this. What's our plan? No, the Holy Spirit is the one it's always doing the directing and, and providing the opportunity and putting a seed, a thought uh, of, in somebody's mind or in, in their heart. So how should we be encouraged from this passage? We should be encouraged to live with a sense of expectancy. And I choose that word because one time someone, Courtney Graham, challenged me about expectation. Expectation is not the right word. That's almost an entitled, presumptive word. As they say in the, the programs, uh, an expectation is a planned disappointment or planned resentment, but an expectation, uh, expectancy. And I have to admit, when I read this passage, I say, God, you know, how can we see more of this in our own lives now? I would have preached this passage totally different 15 years ago. I would have done my best to convince you that these divine encounters should be happening every week in your life. And if they are not, you're failing the mission of Christ. You would have left either so inspired or so guilty. Like, what's wrong with us if this doesn't happen? You know, when we lived in New England. Libby was a dental hygienist, and she has a strong southern accent. And so all day long, people would say, where are you from? And she'd say, North Carolina. I said, what are you doing up here? And she'd say, my husband's starting a church. What? In one of the most unchurched areas as far as actual attendance, but not really deep. And so that would lead into conversation. If I ever told somebody as a pastor, there'd be a follow-up question. They'd be curious about it. Once we moved down here, no one has ever asked me a follow-up question when I told them I was a pastor. It's more like it closed the door. It's like I'm living in a place that has been vaccinated against the gospel virus. If you've grown up in the South, you've accepted Christ three times by the time you're 18. My boys came to NC State to college, and they were in a fraternity. My, one of my sons said, Dad, every guitar has a Young Life sticker on it. But they, they don't seem to be that interested in, a, in God now. 
So the Holy Spirit, like a tide, there, there are ebbs and flows. And I did a doctorate of ministry study in the, in the history of spiritual awakenings and reform in America. And Rachel was kind enough or crazy enough to edit my dissertation. So, I, you know, I think nationally we're in a little bit of a low tide. And what the Christian church has done to attach politically in some ways is, is probably shrinking the tide all, all, all the more. And the tide is rising and has risen a long time in Asia and other parts of the world and it's shrinking here. Yet that doesn't stop us from living with an expectancy and a yearning and a yearning. Just ask the question this week, where might I be unnecessarily bounded in my relationships, in my imagination, where might I be accepting the boundaries constructed for me by my demographic, by my life stage? J just ask the question. Don't tr even try to answer it. And then just say, Lord, show me your way. Show me your way. And then be alert to whom the Holy Spirit may bring in your path and all they want you to do is just love them and be there and get to know them. A young man said to me one time, he said, you know what, I don't think I've ever met a, a serious Christian. And he grew up in the South. I said, what? I said, and I thought, you mean no Christian has come alongside to love you? And it hit me, wow. Lord, help me be the one to come alongside. Help me be alert to you. Help me live with that again, that, that, that passion. Not a fear of missing out expectation, but that, that passion. Help me be part of a new thing. Help me embrace those who want to launch a new thing by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I've had to learn uh, patience and learn trust in you that things aren't always popping spiritually. It's sometimes a, a, a slow flow or even uh, looked like a dried up riverbed. But I thank you that regardless of our environment, regardless of our settings, regardless of what has bounded us, we live in the age of your spirit, expressing your love in the gospel. So I thank you for Oak Church. I thank you for Chris and Rachel and what an encouragement it is to our faith. For Meg all the other folks involved here. And Lord, use us. But first and foremost, help us to experience the depth of your love before we worry about expressing it. In Jesus' name, amen.